the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts as well as you can on Spotify and iTunes, Dan Prof Show is how you find us on social media, or just my name, Dan Prof. And uh, we begin tonight with a bit of a review of day two. Uh, next hour, we're going to have uh, Pulitzer Prize winning biographer David Garrow uh, on to uh, discuss Kamala Harris uh, as uh, she presents tonight. And uh, Kamala Obama is what uh, he calls her. Maybe Kamala Clinton Obama, maybe Kamala Hillary, just standalone i i don't we'll we'll discuss that all with david garrow but for last night i want to go through some of the highlights of course the highlight is supposed to be jill biden and joe biden formally accepting the nomination and everybody jamming along to cool in the gang well thank you very very much from the bottom of my heart thank you all it means the world to me and my family and i'll see you on thursday thank you oh man and but it's for me, uh, there were two highlights and they turned out to not be particularly good highlights for president elect, according to the press, Joe Biden, uh, more so for uh, the individuals who are, are happily concerned that Joe Biden will not be able to generate the sort of enthusiasm that he needs, that Joe Biden cannot, per our conversation with Rolling Stones, Andy Kroll yesterday, cannot keep that uh, coalition such as it is together and uh, focused on election rather than on themselves and their own sort of ideological gambits. Uh, I uh, point to AOC, who uh, only went 50 percent over her a lot of time, which is pretty good for AOC. Uh, AOC offering, uh, you know, the typical pap of all of the isms and all of the phobias leading up to her nomination for the Democrat candidate, her her leveling forward the Democrat candidate for president of her choice. Well, perhaps a bit of a surprise for those watching at home. In fidelity and gratitude to a mass people's movement working to establish 21st century social, economic, and human rights, including guaranteed health care, higher education, living wages, and labor rights for all people in the United States. A movement striving to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia, and to propose and build reimagined systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. A movement that realizes the unsustainable brutality of an economy that rewards explosive inequalities of wealth for the few at the expense of long-term stability for the many, and who organized Wrap a historic grassroots up. campaign Time's to up. reclaim our democracy. 
in a time when millions of people in the United States are looking for deep, systemic solutions to our crises of mass evictions, unemployment, and lack of health care, in el espíritu del pueblo, and out of a love for all people, I hereby second the nomination of Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont Whoa. for President of the United States of America. Floor fight, floor fight. Virtual floor fight? No. Uh, of course, this was just a procedural matter. Uh, she was. She said she was asked by convention organizers second Sanders nomination because he passed the delegate threshold, and then ultimately they went through the rest of the pro forma exercise. But I mean, if you're watching at home and you're not steeped in convention, you know, pro forma minutia, then it just strikes you as kind of odd. She's got a minute. She's you know one of the few given a minute at the con- convention as it is to address the nation. On behalf of the nominee, and she doesn't even mention the nominee. In fact, she mentions, you know, her preferred choice and the guy that uh, that was felled by Joe Biden. It just was sort of, you know, all very odd. But uh, let me tell you something. Um, Nothing was more odd and tone deaf and not in a funny way like AOC is funny unintentionally than Bill Clinton. Again, I know Jill Biden's Jill Biden is supposed to be. The headliner, and I'm not calling her a doctor because she's no more of a doctor than Dr. J is a doctor. Okay, medical doctors, doctors, PhDs in education, you don't get the doctor any more than as a lawyer, somebody with a juris doctorate degree. I don't expect people to call me Dr. Prof. It's ridiculous. Okay, now that I got that out of my system, back to the headliner. The headliner is a former president of the United States. The headliner last night, former first lady on Monday night. On Tuesday night, the headliner, you have a former president of the United States, that's going to be the headliner, even if he has less time than the uh, nominee's wife. Because the backdrop of Bill Clinton addressing the nation to frame the choice in this election for the Democrat Socialist Party is remarkable, made all the more remarkable by new photos, of course, released just hours before Clinton did so, with him getting a massage from... One of those individuals who has accused Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell of uh, criminal misconduct, of criminal sexual misconduct as part of their alleged alleged human trafficking operation. The 22 year old in the picture is a massage therapist named Shante Davies. Now, she said uh, Clinton was perfect gentleman. On the uh, at the airport where she's shown in this picture giving him a massage. By the way, there's no dispute from Clinton world about the authenticity of those pictures. There was an effort to authenticate. There's no comment. Uh, the only uh, comments that Bill Clinton has made, he's made them a couple times now, including after the documentary Filthy Rich was posted on Netflix, that he never visited any of Epstein's places. Uh pedophilia island or his place in florida or his place in new mexico um that he only went on the quote-unquote lolita express four times and those were for philanthropic missions like this uh the pictures that surround this story the new pictures released yesterday supposedly when they were going on some humanitarian trip to africa boy it must have been grueling work, so he needed that massage at the airport. Uh-huh. And oh, this despite the fact that uh, unofficial records, flight manifests have him flying on Epstein's plane 26 times, not four. And you have eyewitnesses, including 
a seemingly credible former comms employee of Jeffrey Epstein on the island saying he saw Bill Clinton there. So the questions about Bill Clinton's candor, I mean, they persist 30 years after the fact. Of course they do. That's the backdrop of Bill Clinton presenting on behalf of the nominee. Even without those new pictures, do people forget that Bill Clinton, I mean, people, I mean, Democrat socialists, the Biden campaign, I'm not here to tell them what to do. I'm just saying this is being uh, suggested that this is such a tight campaign and they've done such a great job just because they've hidden Joe Biden in the basement up until this point. Um, This, to me, is a massive strategic blunder. Bill Clinton was a liability to Hillary in 2016. Do people not remember? Do people not remember he provided the occasion, uh, his prominence in her campaign for uh, Donald Trump to bring in all the Clinton accusers and to view in person the St. Louis debate in which Trump really turned it around after the, uh, you know, the Hollywood, the access Hollywood controversy. And also another aspect of this is this is, again, sort of this return to normalcy, return to Obama, Biden, return to Clinton. This is your futures in the rearview mirror. And half of their party rejects that. Half of Biden's party rejects that idea of going back to 2008, much less 1998. And yet here's Bill Clinton framing the choice. Joe won't just put his signature on a check and try to fool you into thinking it came from him. He'll work to make sure that your paycheck reflects your contribution to and your stake in a growing economy. In this job interview... The difference is stark. You know what Donald Trump will do with four more years? Blame, bully, and belittle. And you know what Joe Biden will do? Build back better. It's Trump's us versus them America against Joe Biden's America, where we all live and work together. It's a clear choice. The future of our country is riding on it. Thank you. Uh, Okay. I mean, uh, you know, again, this is a guy who gets the uh, description as a wonderful communicator boy i don't know it was tired it's hearkening back to a bygone era and it's asking that the 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 party faithful to be energized to go back in time to a time so many of them there that joe biden is counting on weren't even alive i don't know it just made no sense to me coming up uh, after the break we're going to turn our attention to uh, the misreporting on the senate intelligence committee report on russiagate Uh, to help us do that, as well as to talk a little bit about what might yet be forthcoming from the multiple investigations going on into Spygate initiated by the Department of Justice, not just the Durham investigation. We'll uh, talk to JustTheNews.com's John Solomon. So you want to stay tuned for that right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. There is a documentary forthcoming called Russiagate from a uh, truthful, you would say, some would say pro-Trump, but I would say truthful perspective, from Amanda Milius. She's the daughter of John Milius, the great screenwriter and outspoken conservative who took a hammering from Hollywood, was essentially banished in Hollywood for two decades after producing Red Dawn. 
because, you know, it was pro-America against the Soviets in the 80s when Hollywood was pro-Soviet. So his daughter has produced this uh, Russiagate documentary in which she interviews, among others, at least per the trailer, Rudy Giuliani, Devin Nunez, Don Jr. But you can make a whole movie on the Russiagate hoax. It's all documented. There was an illusion being created using the most awesome tools and the greatest tricks that the American intelligence community had learned to use against our enemies. Now it was being deployed against the American people and our president. This is the biggest political scandal in modern history, which makes Watergate look like a a tiff. The FBI director has no credibility. The left used to not trust the FBI, and now they love them. This can happen to General Michael T. Flynn. Imagine what they do to anybody who has a single strike against them. Uh, So this uh, against the backdrop yesterday of the uh, Senate Intel Committee issuing uh, their findings after three year inquiry. The coverage was very interesting. For example, Yahoo News. Trump's 2016 campaign chair communicated with Russian intelligence bipartisan Senate panel find. This is to fuel the Russian collusion conspiracy theory. This is agitprop from the press purposely missing the forest for the twigs so they can hang on to something that says, see, we were right. We weren't off base. Uh, Well, the top line from that report, there is quoting bipartisan report, that same bipartisan report, as it was described by Yahoo News, absolutely no evidence that then candidate Donald Trump or his campaign colluded with the Russian government to meddle in the 2016 election. That's the top line that's buried in the Yahoo News story. Of course it is. Uh, Tom Cotton saying in a statement, it's now time to shift our focus to the many national security threats facing our country instead of relitigating the 2016 election. Just because Russia failed this time doesn't mean it won't keep trying. Well, of course, that's true. Uh, the uh, There is the uh, inclusion in this report that then Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, now in the clink, uh, was communicating with pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine, including Russian national Konstantin Kilimanik. Uh, and on numerous occasions, the report states Manafort sought to secretly share internal campaign information with this uh, Russian uh, national in Ukraine. Taken as a whole, Manafort's high-level access and willing to share information with individuals closely affiliated with the Russian intelligence services particularly Kilmanek and his associates represented a grave counterintelligence threat. They characterized Papadopoulos as not a witting, not a witting co-optee of the Russian intelligence service, uh, but presenting a prime intelligence target. Ultimately, though, they come to the same conclusion that the Mueller investigation did. No evidence of any collusion by Trump or Trump campaign officials. In addition, the report also found... um, concludes deeply troubling actions taken, quote, by the FBI during their investigation into alleged collusion, particularly their acceptance and willingness to rely on the Steele dossier without verifying its methodology or sourcing. That's also buried in the D.C. press corps coverage of this. For more on it all, we're pleased to be joined by our friend John Solomon, uh, justthenews.com. He's an award-winning investigative journalist who founded justthenews.com. He's got a new book out, Fallout. Nuclear bribes, Russian spies, and the Washington lies that led to Trump's impeachment. It's very rhythmic. Uh, John Solomon, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so uh, you heard my characterization of sort of the findings of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, number one, is that a fair representation? And number two, 
Uh, should it have taken three years to get to this? Probably not. Uh, you know, I think Devin Nunez got it done in less than a year at the House Intelligence Committee. It turns out he was right, despite all the media's protestations. Otherwise, it's the third investigation in two and a half years that has confirmed that the Trump campaign did not collude with Russia and that the FBI, not slightly, but seriously misbehaved in its effort to try to prove collusion. So that's the top line. That's what history will remember. Now, there's a very specific uh, jarring headline that all the media are going with today as they cling to the remnants in, of their failed Russian narrative, and that is Konstantin Kalimnik was a Russian intelligence officer. This report says Mueller assessed a little bit differently. He just said that he might have he had, he's believed to have contacts with the Russian intelligence. So this report goes further in identifying this guy Kalimnik, who you know worked for Manafort for years. But here's what the report doesn't tell you: repeatedly. Scores and scores and scores of times between 2014 and 2017, the same man, Konstantin Kalimnik, routinely provided information and met with the senior State Department officials in our U.S. Embassy in Kiev. He was identified as a, quote, sensitive source. Uh, his contact was often th multiple times in a week. He was providing information to the U.S. Embassy and the State Department. If, if he posed such a grave threat because he worked for Manafort, and Manafort worked for Trump, then you would think the Senate Intelligence Committee would take the same grave concern that our State Department, the Obama State Department, was equally compromised because this information fed, or this guy fed enormous amounts of information. Instead, the report glosses over, mostly in footnotes, the fact that Kalimnik uh, was talking to the State Department and said, well, State Department officials were sometimes uh, dubious of some of his information. I have hundreds of emails and, and Mueller testimonies and other pages of documents that I'm going to make public in the next couple of days so the American public can see what the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence kept from them about Kalimnik's ties to the State Department. If it was troublesome for Trump, you think it should be troublesome for our State Department. The committee protected the State Department and glossed over a very serious potential security breach. Well, why would uh, why would they do that? I mean, you, you just had uh, Ron Johnson raked over the coals uh, this week for, uh, you know, the getting slow walked on uh, the investigation yeah. of Homeland Security. Why would right. Senate Intel Republicans allow that to happen? This whitewashing you're describing. I think I think Marco Rubio and uh, and Senator Burr and the other Republican members of this committee will have to answer and say, did you look at these documents? Did you read these documents? Did you see these 302 interviews. There were two chief political officers at the U.S. Embassy, a guy named Kasanoff uh, and uh, the other guy, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but they, they were meeting almost on, on a weekly basis with, with Kalimnik and repeatedly taking information from him, in some cases asking favors of him. Likewise, I have an FBI 302, an interview report with Paul Manafort, where Paul Manafort himself says he met regularly with the ambassadors during the Obama years in Ukraine and assisted them. So, why is that information reduced to footnotes and small mentions in the report? If it was troublesome for others, it should be troublesome for the State Department. I think there's a double standard here. And the Republicans who led this committee, the Democrats who participated on this committee, should look at these documents and respond to them. We should press them for answers. When we come back with JustTheNews.com's John Solomon, I want to get uh, your take on where the Durham investigation is and where you see it going. More with John Solomon right after this.
podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with justthenews.com's John Solomon. And, uh, John, you've been ahead of the learning curve on all things Spygate-related. Uh, and, and so I wanted to get to your take on the development last week in the Durham investigation. Um, after the Kleinsmith plea deal was announced on Friday, uh, the report, at least Maria Bartiromo, is suggesting that from a source she has that uh, Durham is going to be interviewing former CIA Director John Brennan before the week is out. Where do you see this going? It seems to me, according to what some have said, that uh, and some believe Ron Johnson also saying uh, there should be other indictments, including Andy McCabe. Uh, are we still uh, watching the Department of Justice work up the food chain to Jim Comey? Or are, should we uh, modulate our expectations for something less? Yeah, I, I think there's still a very active criminal investigation going on by three separate prosecutors. We all focus on Durham because he was the first guy in and the big name that Bill Barr mentions a lot. But there are two other prosecutors also looking at criminality related to the Russia case. A guy named Jensen, U.S. Attorney Jeff Jensen, is looking at illegalities potentially used against Mike Flynn in the investigation of Mike Flynn. That's separate of Durham. And then there is an attorney, John, U.S. Attorney John Bash of Texas, who's investigating not only unmasking, but the potential illegal searching of Americans' phone records in the NSA database. I think the combination of those three prosecutors will produce some additional criminal charges in the, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, I think in this criminal information that was filed against Kleinsmith on Friday, there is an acknowledgement of an earlier crime. So Kleinsmith is accused in June of 2017 as the last of the four FISA warrants was being approved of doctoring a, doctor, a document to hide the fact that Carter Page was a CIA asset, not a Russian stooge. Pretty important point for the court to have known, and it was kept from it. But the, uh, very craftily, uh, John Durham puts into the criminal information that that same information was transmitted all the way back in August of 2016, two months before the first FISA warrant was uh, produced, and it was kept from all the FISA warrants. That means someone in an earlier time frame, before Kleinsmith, chose to hide that from the court. That becomes a crime, a fraud on the court. I think John Durham was signaling that there are more shoes to drop in his investigation. Well, there's something else about that, too, um, because Kleinsmith wasn't a complete idiot. Um, he uh, made sure that uh, other individuals at FBI got copies of both emails, the actual exactly. email as well as the doctored one. So that makes them complicit. It does. I mean, uh, you can't blame incompetence for this for two reasons. They already knew that the document that Kleinsmith altered was false because they had been briefed in August of 2016 before the, any FISA warrant was submitted to the court. It means that other leaders, other people who are in the chain of command approving the FISA warrant, submitting it to the Justice Department, going before the court and swearing it's verified, knew that the information they were presenting to the court was false, false through omission, not telling the court that the guy they wanted to investigate, Carter Page, was actually a CIA asset, is a gigantic omission, a gigantic failure. And, uh, and I think that John Durham stuck that information into this criminal information 
to make it clear he sees other crimes, that this isn't the only crime he sees, and I will have to wait and see if he brings more charges. Well, if it's a crime for uh, Kleinsmith, then how can you not look at the hierarchy? Remember, this isn't just any, you know, one of many, many investigations we have going on at the FBI. This involves, obviously, the entire senior leadership of the FBI because you're right. investing a presidential candidate, for goodness sakes. So if McCabe and Comey knew, how do they not get indicted? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what we'll have to wait and see. The, the information that is now public doesn't identify who in the Operation uh, Crossfire Hurricane chain of command knew this information. It just says that the, the leadership of the uh, Crossfire Hurricane was aware of it. it. Depending who knew it and when they acted will ultimately come down to who gets indicted, right? It's that level of detail that prosecutors have to go and prove before a grand jury. But I don't believe it's an accident that John Durham went out of his way to mention that. You didn't need that information to charge um, Kleinsmith. It was thrown in there to make clear that this was an ongoing and continuing fraud on the court, that, that Kleinsmith's crime in June was at the back end of a long conspiracy to defraud the FISA court. And I think that that's the sort of case, what I'm hearing from witnesses who are being interviewed, that's one of the questions that they're being asked. Was this a conspiracy to defraud the FISA court, and I think that we'll stay tuned. I think in mid-September we may get more answers. He is John Solomon, award-winning investigative journalist, founder of JustTheNews.com. His new book, Fallout, Nuclear Bribes, Russian Spies, and the Washington Lies That Led to Trump's Impeachment. I can't wait to read it because, as I said at the outset, John Solomon has been ahead of the learning curve on all of this great reporting. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Oprah versus Kimberly Classic. You've certainly heard of Oprah Winfrey. Probably haven't heard of Kimberly Classic, who is a Republican candidate for Congress in inner city Baltimore. She's a Republican candidate running to replace Elijah Cummings in uh, the seat that was vacated upon his passing, now held by Quisium Fume, who is a former head of the NAACP. You know, basically, it's a three to one Dem to Republican district, as are so many in big city America. But uh, Ms. Classic has produced a campaign video, which has gone viral north of five million views, as we're discussing it at present. Really well done. Very well framed. And to the point, also, she presents very well. Listen to what she's saying. You really have to see the, the visual, though, for the full appreciation of the video that uh, she produced. It has her walking through sort of bombed out sections of Baltimore while she is offering her analysis of what has happened and the data to back it up. It's really, really good. Do you care about black lives? The people that run Baltimore don't. I can prove it. Walk with me. They don't want you to see this. I'm Kim Klasick. This is Baltimore, the real Baltimore. This is the reality for black people every single day. Crumbling infrastructure, abandoned homes, poverty, and crime. Baltimore has been run by the Democrat Party for 53 years. What is the result of their decades of leadership? 
Baltimore is one of the top five most dangerous cities in America. The murder rate in Baltimore is 10 times the U.S. average. The Baltimore poverty rate is over 20%. Homicide, drug, and alcohol deaths are skyrocketing in our city. Do you believe Black Lives Matter? I do. The vast majority of crime in Baltimore is perpetrated against black people who make up 60% of the population. So why don't we care about our community? The Democrat Party have betrayed the black people of Baltimore. If the politicians walk the streets like I do, they would see exactly how their policies and corruption affects us. But they don't want to see it. They don't want you to see this. Go to any Baltimore neighborhood and ask this question. Do you want to defund the police? No. No. Absolutely not. I had three sons killed in Baltimore City. And I think if we defund the police office, it's going to be worse than that. So no, I'm opposed to that. What are you going to defund the police for? Why? How do you defend your city, your community? Families are losing people. It's not just Baltimore. The worst place for a black person to live in America is a Democrat-controlled city. It's 2020. Name a blue city where black people's lives have gotten better. Try. I'll wait. Look at this. How are children supposed to live here and play here? Democrats think black people are stupid. They think they can control us forever. That we won't demand better and that we'll keep voting for them forever. Despite what they've done to our families and our communities. Are they right? That's a classic from Kim Klasik, huh? Uh, so that's one approach uh, from that young black woman, Republican candidate for the U.S. House. And look, it's unlikely she wins that race just because the numbers are so stacked against her. But uh, because of this video that she's done getting attention to her campaign now and uh, the powerful message she delivered in a very consumable way, you start to maybe change people's understanding of things. You know, things are not a continuum. We're too short sighted sometimes when we're talking about trying to uh, garner more of this vote or that vote, trying to bring people into conservative ranks. You expect it to be an epiphany that just occurs because the power of your argument is so evidently persuasive to you, but it's not to others. It takes time. People don't flip overnight unless they're doing so for reasons of expedience. Usually the epiphany is rare. Uh, So it takes time. But you change the conversation by being courageous and thoughtful like Miss Klasik is. And then you start to change people's thinking. Then you start to change their behavior. And then you get people doing different things on Election Day than they had previously done. And then you start to change outcomes. So it's a continuum. It's not just throwing a switch. But uh, this is a great contribution on the road to moving people down that continuum. The flip side from a person who you do know, Oprah Winfrey, on her Apple TV show, The Oprah Winfrey Conversation. The first uh, black female billionaire in America lamenting the weaponization of whiteness. A lot of people might not have recognized whiteness as a weapon. So I want to ask this group, do you understand now more clearly what that means using whiteness as a weapon? Yeah, the whiteness as a weapon from uh, Oprah. So you can live in that sort of identitarian society where you establish a new racial order. And that's what the left is attempting to do with their anti-racist, in quotation marks, movement with BLM, uh, Marxism with race rather than class as the lever, whiteness as a weapon, 
indelibly racist. The only thing you can do is forever be in a, in a prone atonement position uh, and paying consultants like uh, Robin D'Angelo tens of thousands of dollars if you're a corporation in order to uh, educate you on how you shall seek contrition on a daily basis for things you didn't do, but but because of non-behavioral characteristics like your skin color. That's one approach. And it seems to me, as we were talking about earlier in the hour, about framing the choice, as we've been talking the last two days with the DNC as the backdrop, Bill Clinton framing the choice for America on behalf of Joe Biden. Well, here's a choice, too, and I hope the RNC, I hope President Trump at the RNC picks this up and um, has it uh, tightly scripted and presents this choice, too. Uh, you know, they, all the talk of unity, and yet what is the the message behind the unity. It's disunity. It's dividing based on non-behavioral characteristics. That's what identitarian politics is. And it creates for very, for very combustible situations, doesn't it? So there's that view of race relations and opportunities across the racial spectrum in America, the whiteness as a weapon view. And then there's what Kim Klasik is saying about uh, think, rethinking our approach to big cities in America so that you keep your promises of public safety and educational opportunity and by extension, economic empowerment to people who haven't enjoyed those benefits for several generations at the hands of forget the party affiliation, a particular philosophy, an ideology to which big city mayors have been committed despite the results. That's a, that's a great choice. If you want to do what Kim Klasik uh, is doing, changing the conversation to change people's thinking, to change their behavior on election days, both November 3rd and well into the future. This is Dan Proff. On the wings of love, up above the clouds, the only way to fly is on the wings of love. On the wings of love. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Matt Taibbi is uh, covering the Democrat Socialist National Convention, so um, we don't have to, at least not to this level of detail. He suggests that um, no one is going to get out of this thing sober. If you play the official 2020 Democrat National Convention drinking game that he has concocted, I would say no one should get into it sober, that the only way to watch it is uh, a bit uh, with a a tenuous grasp on reality, much like those presenting have. He uh, writes, imagine a four-day Zoom meeting in which the likes of John Kasich, Michael Bloomberg, and Nancy Pelosi warn you for the 50th through 60th millionth, 60 millionth time about the existential threat of Donald Trump And you come close to envisioning both hell on earth and what we're all in for this week with the Democrat Party's Biden-Harris virtual coronation. The alternative is to start drinking early. Yes. And um, so uh, some things you should look for and you've already heard in the first couple of days. The uh, convention could obliterate the boozing public with a single word previewed in a thousand headlines when Kamala Harris was named Biden's running mate. Historic. Trump re-election complicated by historic VP pick. Why Kamala Harris is a historic VP pick. Reese Witherspoon shares a heartfelt story in the wake of Kamala Harris's historic VP selection. But lest you think that the D.C. press corps is sharing a brain or a copy editor or a headline writer. 
he uh, goes on to say, turn your TV to CNN or MSNBC right now. The odds aren't bad. I put them at about seven to two that the word historic is in the Chiron. You'll hear this word 5,000 times at minimum per day of convention coverage. Out of respect for human life, you'll therefore be asked to drink to history or historic only when uttered by actual convention speakers, because obviously to do so, if you included the D.C. press corps and the punditocracy, you would uh, die quickly of alcohol poisoning. Uh, he also has uh, a few more uh, for you to consider in the, the closing days of the convention. Still time to have this fun, even um, if you haven't been captivated so far or even interested enough to watch. You've heard convention coverage 2016 to 2020 down 25 percent after day one. OK, uh, other uh, words or phrases to uh, knock one back to post office. Soul of America, existential threats already been mentioned. That also could uh, induce alcohol poisoning. You better you know, limit that to only convention speakers or, as well. This president, let me be clear, access as in access to affordable health care, access to a good education, systemic, systematic, structural, fundamental or fundamentally. Double shot if the words are uttered by someone who has never voted or for or supported a systemic reform. <laughs> uh, this is not who we are. Oh, yeah. Above the law, Russia, unity slash civility, democracy itself, and only once per hour, regardless of who says it. Again, to pace yourself. Racist, black lives, or lies. Bonus rule from Taibi. Drink every time someone blames Trump for coronavirus deaths. Make your own group judgment as to whether or not the blame is deserved if you're uh, doing so among friends. Or your own independent judgment otherwise. I appreciate that uh, helpful tip helpful tips, the helpful game that Matt Taibbi came up with for all of us to uh, marshal ourselves through uh, a couple more days of Democrat socialists on the virtual stage. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. website. You also find the podcast there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Andrew Cuomo, America's governor, that's what I understand, uh, future speaker at day one of the DNC. Andrew Cuomo back at the height of the infections in New York City and New York State. This was that governor, Andrew Cuomo. These were just extraordinary efforts and acts of mobilization. And uh, the federal government stepped up and was a great partner. And I'm the first one to say it. Uh, we needed help and they were there. Really? Remember that, Andrew Cuomo? Because you got uh, the other governor, Andrew Cuomo, on Monday evening, didn't you? Our current federal government is dysfunctional and incompetent. It couldn't fight off the virus. In fact, it didn't even see it coming. The European virus infected the Northeast while the White House was still fixated on China. The virus had been attacking us for months before they even knew it was here. We saw the failure of a government that tried to deny the virus, then tried to ignore it, and then tried to politicize it. The failed federal government that watched New York get ambushed by their negligence and then watched New York suffer, but all through it learned absolutely nothing. Boy, uh, those are about 180 degrees apart and just a couple of months apart, aren't they? 
So I'm sorry, who's politicizing the virus? Andrew Cuomo also getting hit from the Atlantic of all places, hardly a conservative outlet. No, COVID-19 is not a metaphor, as he you tried to use it as a metaphor for our politics. Cuomo may have a good story to tell about New York's stabilization and recovery, but can a finally flattened curve really count as a success when the initial spike was so severe, so deadly, and so preventable? The governor would say yes. He routinely deflected questions about what he could have done differently and skirted blame for New York's nursing home tragedy, which uh, by some estimates was 6,000 excess deaths because of his decision to send infected patients back into nursing homes. And there's no accounting for that. So tell me again where the buck has stopped and where it hasn't, who's politicizing and who isn't, who's maintaining a consistent message and a consistent posture of assistance and who is lauding those who provide resources when they do and then turning right around and sticking it in their back when it becomes politically expedient to do so. And that's America's governor? No, I don't think so. For more on this and a few other topics, we're pleased to be joined again by the United States Surgeon General. He is Dr. Jerome Adams. Dr. Adams, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be with you. The power grabs that are being made by politicians. And I know this is not your space. You're a medical professional and you're focused on that aspect of this. But I mean, uh, unfortunately, you have to deal with it and and deal with it all, as does every member of the task force, every member of the president's team on this. And I just wonder how you receive people who, on the one hand, say, thank you so much, Dr. Adams. In the next breath, they say, Dr. Adams is part of the problem, like Andrew Cuomo. It's been incredibly frustrating all around. We're dealing with a once in a century pandemic, but there's no chapter in the pandemic playbook on an impeachment trial or a presidential election, or a social justice movement, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 60s. And it it, it changes everyone's motives, everyone's agendas, and the way people act. I mean, unfortunately, there are people who hate the other party on both sides more than they hate the virus. And I'm here just trying to defeat the virus. And you you mentioned uh, Governor Cuomo. I I think we all have to be careful about taking a victory lap when you've got 170,000 people dead. We've got to be careful about pointing fingers. We've got red state governors who've uh, had problems. We have California and New York, the two states that are responsible for uh, the most cases and the most deaths in the entire country. And so there's no one who's come out of this unscathed. Something else that's a problem, too, is the I would argue, willful promulgation of misinformation that drives ignorance, that drives fear. And I speak to a new survey from Franklin Templeton and Gallup that finds uh, Americans completely misinformed about the virus and its impact. For example, Americans believe that people aged 55 and older account for just over half of the total COVID-19 deaths. The actual figure is 92 percent. Americans believe that people 44 and younger account for about 30 percent of total deaths. The actual figure is 2.7 percent off by a factor of 15 because they have perpetuated this misinformation that, uh, you know, everybody has equal exposure. So they apply too much risk at the younger ages when we're talking about, for example, reopening schools. And they apply a too little risk at the older ages for the people that we should be most concerned about protecting. That's a problem. Well, you are right, Dan. I mean, you're, you're so right. And unfortunately, uh, again, you've got politics and you've got people whose agenda really is other things than informing the public. And they also present these binary options, all or none. It, it, they say if you're for reopening, then you have to be against health. Uh, and what I say to people is, look, whether or not you will be able to safely reopen depends on the background community transmission rates. 
And so uh, it's not health or reopening. It is let's follow some basic public health measures that are small inconveniences so that we can have the bigger conveniences of reopening and staying open. That, that's what I really hope people will uh, come together and understand. And I also would tell people to go to coronavirus.gov, available in English and Spanish, or to the State Department of Health website, and look at the facts yourself. Uh, let's talk about uh, vaccines for, for a minute. There's a good piece, an op-ed from Dr. Joel Zinberg, who's uh, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's also a clinical professor of surgery at Mount Sinai in New York and um, a University of Chicago professor of public policy, Tomas Philipson, about uh, Operation Warp Speed. And oh, by the way, and I wish perhaps somebody would have uh, leveled this up for public consumption a little bit earlier. They talk about their work in developing a plan in September of last year. White House report managing the impact of pandemic influenza through vaccine innovation, which prompted immediate presidential action, an executive order issued by Trump, that has accelerated development of a COVID vaccine. The main issue previously is vaccine developers aren't rewarded for innovation to overcome the problem of underinvestment. They propose in this report public investment in public-private research and development partnerships to promote push incentives rather than just the pull incentives previously. And... Um, and through Operation Warp Speed, the government assumes the economic risk of establishing mass production capabilities while vaccines are still in development, rather than waiting until after approval to scale up production. And resources have been devoted to this, as well as to therapeutics like those produced by Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. And so this is something that shows some foresight and action before we recognize that COVID-19 was going to dominate us in 2020 seems to me something that should be discussed a little bit um, uh, more openly by the administration. One of the things that has come out of this that's been incredibly positive has been the public-private partnerships towards therapeutic and vaccine developments, a record pace, and it really is going to change the way we develop these types of products moving forward in the future. So it will not only help us overcome this pandemic, but it will help us uh, with other pandemics, remdesivir, um, steroids, convalescent plasma, therapeutics really have decreased, again, the mortality rate. And we're going to have a vaccine, Tony Fauci tells me, he still expects a vaccine by uh, the end of this year, beginning of next year. And that's important for people to understand, because when people say, how long do we have to follow these basic public health measures? Is it going to be forever? No, it's, it's literally, literally going to be through the end of this year, beginning of next year, we're trying to limit the loss of life and spread until we get to a vaccine. And because of Operation Warp Speed, we're going to get to a vaccine faster than anyone ever predicted. And, uh, and, and again, in time, for us to be able to significantly lower loss of life, but it doesn't mean we have to shut down. What about this uh, uh, matter of antibodies and the expression of antibodies in the population? There's been some interesting data comparisons that I've looked at. We talked about on the show a little bit yesterday, uh, where you find that uh, New York and Sweden uh, had decreased their deaths to near zero at about the same time, and they reached uh, antibody expression in the population about the same level of 15 to 20 percent. You also see this in northern Italy. You see this in a hotspot in Iran that perhaps herd immunity is much lower than some of the experts actually thought. And that the one variable that actually matters is not shutdowns. It's not even mask wearing. It's the level of antibody expression in the population that's suffered an outbreak. I would direct people to the New York Times article on this. It actually does a really good job of describing B cell immunity and T cell immunity. And when we look at antibodies, uh, that's your body's response to the virus when it's in its system. And uh, we can measure antibodies really easily. Uh, but there's also T cell immunity, which is really hard to measure. And there's some belief that people may have T cell immunity 
from getting other coronaviruses. And the common cold is a coronavirus that we've all been exposed to, and that that may lessen the number of people who need to actually be infected uh, to get to a level of what you call herd immunity, which is where the disease can't spread successfully in a community because uh, enough people are immune. Uh, we're hopeful for that, but the important policy point is that people who argue herd immunity then say, well, we need to let the virus rip so we get to herd immunity. Uh, I actually reject that. Um, I think that, that you can hope for herd immunity while also um, taking public health measures, because if you take those public health measures, you decrease the r not and the transmissibility in the community. These two should work together. He is Dr. Jerome Adams. He's the Surgeon General of the United States. Dr. Adams, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Three W's, wash your hands, wear a mask, watch your distance, and we will get through this. Don't let people suck you into the politics because it really should be about public health and all of us coming together. Uh, I, I have faith we can do it, and I want to thank you all for giving people the facts coronavirus.gov. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. Appreciate it. Saturday in the park I think it was the 4th of July Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Last hour, we talked to JustTheNews.com's John Solomon about the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee's report, three years in the making, on uh, Russia Gate, on Spygate, on Russian collusion, uh, reiterating the top-line conclusion of the Mueller report, no evidence the Trump campaign, uh, Trump or his campaign, colluded with the Russians in any material way in 2016. That's the top line. Uh, that against the backdrop on uh, Tuesday night, of uh, Sally Yates, former acting AG, taking uh, the uh, virtual stage uh, on behalf of Joe Biden. And uh, that against the backdrop of investigative reporter Lee Smith's new book, The Permanent Coup. Just to refresh her recollection of Sally Yates, she testified before uh, Senate uh, Judiciary Committee just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I thought her exchange with Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, was the most uh, poignant one. I noticed that you you said, Ms. Yates, to the IG, that uh, you didn't know who Christopher Steele was working for. In fact, you opined to the IG that you thought maybe he was working for the Republican Party. Of course, we know from Steele himself, Steele told the IG that he, Steele, told the FBI in July of 2016 that he'd been hired by the Democrats. We also know that your deputy, Bruce Orr, knew that Steele was working for the Democrats. And the same deputy, Bruce Orr, your deputy, while he was working for you, was actively facilitating contacts between the FBI and uh, Steele, and also between the State Department and Steele. How did this happen on your watch? Is it, is it normal for you to permit your deputies to facilitate contacts between political parties and the FBI and the State Department? Is that routine behavior? permitting Bruce Orr to do anything. As the Inspector General found, I was completely unaware of Bruce Orr's actions. I'm sorry, could you, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear that. Can you repeat that? I wasn't allowing Bruce Orr to do anything. As the Inspector General found in the IG report to which you have referred, that I was completely unaware of Bruce Orr's actions. And Bruce Orr had no involvement from our side in any of the Russian investigation or the Carter Page files. I- and it continued. I seem to detect a pattern here. There's, Ms. Yates testifies she has no idea what her deputy is doing as he facilitates 
contact between a political party opposition research and the FBI. She has no idea that these, these applications that she signed materially misled a federal court, just as Rosenstein said, he had no idea. Nobody appears to know anything in this government, and yet somehow a federal court was deliberately and systematically misled so severely that they now say they can't trust anything that the FBI did. If this doesn't call for a cleaning of house at DOJ and the FBI, I don't know what is, and I just know that Bruce Orr is still on the payroll at the Department of Justice. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Remarkable. And uh, Joe Biden campaign clearly doesn't want to clean house and wants to put uh, the same people back in the house over at DOJ and FBI. If uh, their lineup at uh, the convention is any indication for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of the recently released Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you for having me on. Uh, based on that performance uh, before uh, Senate Judiciary just a couple weeks ago, interesting choice to include Sally Yates in the program. Well, I mean, that could be your future attorney general, That's right. President Biden, and that should scare all Americans. Sally Yates should be in jail. She should not be anywhere out in public. She should be shamed for her role. You know, it's amazing to watch her. You know, she's a very attractive woman. She's well-spoken, so she gets away with her repeated lies. But it's important to note that she signed the first two FISAs against Carter Page, FISAs that are now deemed illegal, basically, that have been condemned by the FISA court and that were presented as evidence to a secret court where Carter Page could not defend himself. Yet here she is now, almost four years later. This is the Dan Prof Show. And is a leading light of the Democratic Party, just reflective of their corruption and that they will do anything, abuse any power, exploit any office that they have to take down and destroy their political enemies. Well, and we also find her to be very much like Rod Rosenstein, amazingly uninquisitive to be the chief law enforcement officer of the country. And uh, this in the context of an investigation into a presidential candidate and then the president elect of the United States. Amazingly lacking curiosity about the quality of the evidence being used in support of surveillance warrants on the president elect and his associates. Just remarkable. And and when she's not uncurious, she is uh, completely oblivious to what's going on with uh, her direct reports. That's exactly right. And it's Jim Comey. It's all of these people. Either you are deceptive people or you're completely incompetent and should have had no role in, you know, the most powerful law enforcement agency in the in the world. Um, So but, Dan, let's also remember what Sally Yates did. She went in. She was central in the role. She played a central role in the ambush, the setup of Mike Flynn. She is the one who went to the White House counsel to tattle on Mike She not only called Carter Page a Russian agent in the FISA, she told the White House counsel, Don McGahn, that Mike Flynn was compromised and that he would be subjected to Russian blackmail for his conversations with the Russian ambassador. So her role in the early setup and sabotage of the Trump campaign and then presidency is well documented. So, of course, they're going to to highlight her. I mean, she was very successful in the early efforts to try to take out Donald Trump. And, and, and again, then the response for what turned out not to be true is to say, well, I, you know, I had no idea I was relying on somebody else. It's just great because uh, uh, you got uh, the lecture from Bill Clinton, of all people, uh, on Tuesday night's uh, convention lineup 
talking about uh, the buck stops everywhere, but on President Trump's desk, he doesn't take responsibility for what happens on his watch. Well, that is exactly what the case has been. And the argument is uh, made by all of these individuals, the the top law enforcement agent of the country at Department of Justice, the FBI director, all of these principals, the CIA director, all these principals uh, during the Obama years were not responsible for what happened under their leadership of various agencies or in various senior level posts. Look, Dan, everyone knew who Christopher Steele was. He had a long-term friendship with Bruce Orr. What Josh Howley, unfortunately, and he did a good job, unfortunately he failed to mention Bruce Orr's wife, Nellie Orr, was hired by Fusion GPS Glenn Simpson to work on the exact same anti-Trump Russian opposition research project that Christopher Steele was working on. The other person who met with Bruce Orr and Christopher Steele at the end of July 2016 was Nellie Orr, who was being paid by the same people Christopher Steele was being paid by. Chris Steele was well-known in the Justice Department. He was well-known in the State Department. He had a long-term friendship with Jonathan uh, who now is going to be subpoenaed by Ron Johnson's committee. Everyone knew what Christopher Steele, who he was. Everyone knew what he was up to. Everyone knew who was paying him. Everyone knew the dossier was garbage. They knew that the summer of 2016, but they went ahead and not only deceived a federal court, secret court, they deceived the American public for years. Um, And so this was an attack on all of us on our rule of law, on our system of checks and balances, on a fair judicial process. This was an attack on our country, way worse than what the Russians tried to do four years ago. She is Julie Kelly. She's a senior contributor to American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of the recently released Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Kamala Harris, uh, we've talked uh, a bit about her since her elevation to be Joe Biden's running mate last week, but it's mostly been in the context of her failed presidential campaign. A little bit of the backstory of her rise to prominence in California politics, but it's mostly been about, uh, you know, the last 18 months, her promise as a serious presidential contender to the failure of her campaign to have to bow out before a vote was cast in the Democrat socialist primary. And uh, there's a good piece by David Garrow in uh, Spectator, spectator spectator.us, Kamala Obama, and uh, some of the parallels in terms of uh, Kamala's treatment and personal story to uh, President Obama. There are similarities and there are differences, of course. David Garrow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. Uh, He won the Pulitzer for his uh, biography on Martin Luther King Jr., Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, he he also wrote a book about President Obama, so he did his uh, due diligence on President Obama as well when uh, most in the D.C. press corps chose to turn a blind eye, and that seems to be in part what they're doing with Kamala Harris, who could be one heartbeat away from the president, as they say. 
David Garrow, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Certainly, Dan. I, uh, in your piece, I, I, I love the, uh, the quote you pulled from a former Kamala Harris uh, staffer from a presidential campaign. Uh, her inability to stake out bold positions, stick to a plan, or give voters a sense of her core values doomed her chances. Doomed her chances for president, but turned out to be a great asset to be uh, the VP running mate. Yes. It's very surprising to me as a historian and biographer how little about Harris's life story has been written up until this past week. I was curious uh, when she was chosen to see how much about her uh, there was, um, you know, back in California. And while there are two good profiles uh, written of her in 2003 when she started running for San Francisco District Attorney, uh, there's really nothing comprehensive that chronicles her undergraduate years at Howard University and her three years uh, in law school uh, in San Francisco. It's a, a story uh, very much in need of, of a you know serious biographical uh, inquiry. Right, and um, you know, I, I, there's obviously a lot of internet memes that are uh, not particularly tasteful on the topic, but it is part of her ascent, a political ascent, and it deserves some scrutiny. Her relationship with former State Assembly Speaker Willie Brown when he was 60, she was 29, and he introduced her to uh, elite circles in San Francisco as his girlfriend. And this was uh, the beginning of her of doors being open for Kamala Harris politically. Yes, exactly. She was Speaker and then Mayor Brown's companion for about two years. And I think what's most crucial, as you note, is that it was it was Brown who was a real power broker in California politics, African-American speaker of the state assembly, then gets elected mayor of San Francisco. It's Brown who introduced her to the real moneyed elite of the Bay Area. And so when she then runs for DA and wins, when she then runs for state attorney general and wins, when she succeeds Barbara Boxer in the U.S. Senate, it's very much like Barack Obama's story uh, in and around Chicago, you know, that early on he obtained entree to wealthy uh, Democratic donors. And it's that San Francisco donor cohort that is really Senator Harris's political base. The difference is, though, again, as you point out in your piece, is that she rubs some people, some power brokers in the Democrat establishment the wrong way, where Barack Obama was much more deft in navigating within his own party, even when he challenged Bobby Rush in a primary. That wasn't really a, a, too much of an issue for the donor class. Um, but you you point out San Francisco Chronicle editor Jerry Roberts dismissed her as imperious queen Kamala, uh, calling her a shallow narcissist, that there's not much there. That was not the uh, media treatment locally that Barack Obama got, even when he was a state senator, much less a U.S. senator. Absolutely correct, Dan. I mean, Obama, when he was in Springfield, when he challenged Bobby Rush, uh, Obama was a, a consistent progressive and a very successful state legislator. So if, if one looks at his record prior to his U.S. Senate race and compares it with Harris's record as, as a DA and a state attorney general, there's no question that Obama uh, was a much more intellectually serious policymaker, you know, someone who, who really did the job, and I know this will surprise many people in the present day, but down in Springfield in, in his eight years there, Obama was very much a work across the aisle yeah, guy. Yeah, he was well-liked. Uh, yeah, 
who had you know good relations with many Senate Republicans, conservative Republicans. We've mentioned some of the similarities between Obama and Kamala. When we come back with Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author David Garrow, we'll talk about some of the differences between the two. We'll be right back. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author David Garrow about uh, his piece at Spectator.us, Kamala Obama. And uh, I want to pick up on uh, what you were saying about uh, former President Obama, but uh, but the same sort of thing. And the difference is, it seems to me, he's just much more skillful than she is, even, um, even when, again, he was at the state level, much more skillful in navigating the arena, much more skillful, frankly, in being a cipher for the radical left and sort of keeping them at bay while maintaining at least some sort of patina of intellectual consistency. Again, she's coming from San Francisco, so there wasn't like she was being challenged in any material way, and he was in Hyde Park, so he wasn't being challenged in any material way either. So it was really a blank canvas on which they could paint, and it seems to me, well, there's no question, obviously, based on her presidential campaign performance, that he's better at it, So, which is why I I wonder if what uh, the Democrats are doing and the Biden campaign is doing is projecting onto her Obama-like qualities that she actually doesn't possess. That's quite possible. I think there's no question after the the sort of public criticisms that we saw of uh, Representative Karen Bass and former Ambassador Susan Rice that the Biden camp felt Senator Harris was the safest, uh, least objectionable vice presidential choice to put forward. But what's of concern to me, and I'm, I'm, you know, a sort of left liberal Democrat, is it's fairly unusual to have former staff members speak so critically in public of a politician, as is the case with Senator Harris. And so when you get, you have former staffers, and the, the one fellow whom I quote, Gil Duran, who's now an editor at the Sacramento paper, he's no outlier. He had worked for Jerry Brown, uh, quite, you know, left liberal governor of, of California, um, and Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, so he's very much an establishment Democrat. Uh, when someone with, with that sort of pedigree speaks so critically of a politician's decision-making abilities and, and lack of commitments, that really gives me pause. Well, the other... I, I, wish, yeah. I wish so much we had, you know... Uh, whether on the left or on the right, I so wish we had more principled people in public life rather than folks who, uh, you know, change their opinion, uh, whether it's on, you know, police behavior or uh, abortion, you know, simply when when uh, it becomes convenient to do so. Well, and Biden's done that over the course of his career, despite his, uh, you know, his rap now that, uh, you know, when I say something, then that's gospel and you can count on it. Well, there's been... 180 degree moves on policy issues, including the life issue that you just mentioned by Joe Biden. And with Kamala, there's been 180 degree moves on her career 
in addition to her positions as a prosecutor and then also now positions in the political arena from senator to president. Short amount of time, she's all over the map, as her former staffer said. That was not inaccurate. Exactly. Uh, And so with respect to Kamala, too, there's something else. And so I just wonder how this comports. I mean, temperament, uh, the temperament between Barack Obama and Kamala Harris is very different. You've seen it uh, play out in Senate hearings, perhaps most notably the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. Uh, She comes across as quite pointed and perhaps uh, to some nasty. So the idea that, uh, you know, Trump is this uh, demeaning political bully and he's uh, sharp tongued and he's uh, a name caller and so on and so forth. I mean, Kamala Harris doesn't have Barack Obama's sort of room temperature, easy breezy attitude about things. But Barack Obama would say things that were pointed, but he wouldn't do so with a demeanor that came across as pointed. She's the opposite of that. Barack Obama can be exasperated, very exasperated. I've I've experienced that face to face myself. But uh, Senator Harris's demeanor uh, at the hearings on Justice Kavanaugh I found that extremely distasteful and, and off-putting. And again, I'm, I'm a, a liberal Democrat, but the treatment of, of Justice Kavanaugh at those hearings by senators, not just Harris, but Senator Whitehouse from uh, Rhode Island sticks in mind too, was just unacceptable in, in public life. And uh, I'm no fan of President Trump, but we've seen an almost across-the-board onslaught of, of bad manners and, and insult shouting um, and it would be so nice if, if we could go back to a, a more professional, respectful, polite tone in, in public life. Well, that doesn't seem like it's uh, in the offing anytime soon. I, um, I spoke to uh, Andy Kroll, who's the uh, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone magazine, about uh, day one of the convention. And he said something that sort of was interesting to me, um, which is that because I asked him the question, you know, are, are, do you get the sense people you talk to, including on background and so forth, uh, those who are decision makers and strategists for the party and for the Biden campaign, uh, are they at all concerned about what's happening in the streets of uh, America's cities and the perception that uh, Democrats are not exactly rallying to the defense of uh, law and order? They, do they see that as potential ex- political exposure for them? And he said, no, not really. Uh, the Biden debate performance, Biden's mental acuity, see that as a concern? No, not really. The only thing they're concerned about, he said, the main thing they're concerned about is whether or not they can keep this coalition they've stitched together together. The AOCs of the world, the squad combined with the uh, JFK Democrats, the handful that are left. Can they keep it all together to have everybody rowing their oars in the direction uh, towards the finish line? That was the only concern they had. And, and if that's the only concern, how does Kamala Harris exactly help them? Do they see her as some bridge between the factions within the party? I don't think Senator Harris has any particular appeal to uh, AOC fans or uh, Bernie Sanders supporters at all. I think the sort of African-American enthusiasm that we see, particularly among black women for Senator Harris, is coming probably almost entirely from people who already would be be voting for Joe Biden. I think the degree of turmoil and violence that we've seen in in multiple cities, uh, Chicago being a a horrible example, I think that has a a very powerful, silent impact on, on a lot of Americans that they may not be confessing to, to pollsters, you know, leaving people, uh, you know, in city after city, state after state, Chicago, Minneapolis, Portland, uh, Seattle, 
you know, very uncomfortable uh, about this breakdown in, in municipal public order. He is David Garrow. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. He won the Pulitzer for Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, check out his column, which I'll tweet out, that we were discussing. Kamala Obama. David Garrow, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. And this whole uh, post office conspiracy theorizing from the left has been so absurd, so absurd, even liberal columnist Bill Shear had to uh, inveigh that we should be very precise with our language on the subject. Trump is saying he opposes extra money in any stimulus bill to aid mail-in voting since he doesn't want universal mail voting. He is not copping to purposely slowing mail delivery to prevent ballots from being counted. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And then you have to have the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, say, I'm suspending all operational changes to uh, improve the efficiency and financial viability of the post office and we're suspending them until after the election removal of mail processing equipment collection boxes so as to reassure the uh, hysterical democrats and those others in whom they're inducing similar hysteria it's just ridiculous people should be insulted to participate in this sort of nonsense purposeful misinformation purposeful conspiracy theorizing Anybody who uh, wants to go back to Trump's, uh, you know, Obama birth certificate nonsense. And that was nonsense. Nonsense. Should be embarrassed to have done that. He should be. Uh, we should, anybody should be embarrassed to participate in it. Stupidity. Ignorance. Same thing here. Once you hold yourself to a consistent standard, all those who are so blinded by Trump hate, they go off on every ridiculous gambit that anybody comes up with as long as they're shouting. For goodness sakes. The good news is we've got uh, somebody who's uh, weighed in to calm everybody down including those worried about the viability of the post office. And that is America's greatest postman, perhaps Cliff Clavin, the uh, actor played Cliff Clavin. Of course, John Ratzenberger has weighed in on the topic. He's got an idea how to save the post office. John Ratzenberger, good Republican, by the way, unlike the leadership of the postal unions. And speaking of mailmen, uh, you know, the post office is in a little bit of a pickle right now. It's It's certainly in the news being bounced back and forth. So I had an idea. Why not do all your Christmas shopping early at the post office store? Yeah, in the post office, they got a store in there. Obviously stamps and things like that. So why not translate the dollar amount you're going to pay for uh, Antilles' uh, new hat? Antilles. Just buy that amount of stamps. Easy to carry, easy to mail, easy to ship. Yeah, look, uh, it's a fair point, uh, Cliffy. I still have my Reagan commemorative stamps. I what else do I have? I have some other commemorative stamps too, like you know, in, in Boston I saved. It's, it's a good idea. Good idea. That's uh, something maybe even Fraser Norm could get around. Um, or we could get Cliff back on Jeopardy to see if uh, he uh, doesn't blow it this time in Final Jeopardy. Remember that great episode where he had the dream board and, and then he had the Final Jeopardy questions. You remember it as a uh, kid of the '80s. And uh, a cheers aficionado. Archibald Leach, Bernard Schwartz, and Lucille Lesur, the real names. That, that's the, that was the final Jeopardy answer. 
Cliff wrote, who are three people who have never been in my kitchen? And then, of course, Alan would Alex, argue with Alex Trebek about that because those three people have technically never been in his kitchen. Archibald Leach, Cary Grant, Bernard Schwartz, Tony Curtis, Lucille Lasur, Joan Crawford. So maybe uh, Cliff, as sort of the postal representative on Jeopardy, could uh, go on a Ken Jennings-like winning streak and help uh, the post office regain solvency that way, too. Just a thought. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com, as well as on social media at Dan Proft Show. Michael Anton, a.k.a. the man formerly known as uh, Publius Decius Moose, uh, writing in the Claremont Review of Books, The Case for Trump, from a, a forthcoming book of his, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Uh, he of uh, Flight 93, Election Infamy, and many other very good essays. Uh, he um, writes in his piece that uh, essentially the uh, cure for the problems that uh, a Trump supporter may have with Trump what he hasn't accomplished that you hoped he would, the complete fulfillment of some promises that is incomplete at present, the cure for that, more Trump, uh, sort of like more cowbell. Uh, for more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Anton, a Claremont Review of Books, and again, uh, his forthcoming book, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you. Um, I should also mention you're a, a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, which is a, a wonderful institution of higher education. Well, you can't say that about many colleges these days anymore. Uh, Michael, uh, so the case or the, uh, the, the, the concerns you have for Trump, if you're upset with Trump for not completing the wall, if you're upset with Trump for not reining in runaway uh, federal spending, if you're upset for Trump on uh, any range of topics, uh, the progress on, uh, uh, on global trade, then the cure is more Trump. Explain. Well, look, if, you, if you're upset because he didn't finish the wall, then uh, to vote against him is to ensure that not only will the wall never be finished, but the explicit position of many in the Democratic Party, I'm not sure if this is actually in their platform. You couldn't pay me to read their platform. But many of the candidates in the primary said they wanted to tear down sections that were already there. So, you know, the, you're not going to get more Trump by, uh, on that score by voting against him. Uh, I actually, on the trade front, I actually think Trump has done a lot better than uh, his critics will give him credit for. He has renegotiated a couple of the worst deals. He hasn't made any new deals. I think, you know, and if, we were, if we remember back in 2014, the big trade issue was this TPP that even Trump even forced Hillary during the course of the campaign to declare it got he made it so unpopular that she had to declare that you know she wouldn't sign it as it existed now i mean she's a clinton so you have to take any pledge with a grain of salt i think something would have been signed she they would have tweaked some paragraph here or there and she would have been able to say oh i completely uh, fixed this it has no problems now now i'm all for it in other words we would have gotten more of the same trade and uh agenda we certainly wouldn't have had the confrontations the serious confrontations with china that we got uh in the trump administration so I think he's actually done really well there. He hasn't done enough, but if he gets another term, he could do a lot more. Um, 
you know, the real issue here is, isn't, the real issue here is, you know, why? Why haven't we gotten uh, all that we wanted out of the Trump administration? Well, for one thing, it's only been one term. You know, very few administrations are able to do everything they want to do in one term. Very few administrations are able to do everything they want to do in two terms. That's just the nature of American politics. But no administration in history that I know of, and I'm above average in terms of my knowledge of American history. I mean, I'm not the, 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 the best. I don't know everything about it, but I know something about it. I, don't, I cannot point to, and I would be hard-pressed to think of, or hard-pressed to acknowledge if someone else were to raise another administration that just faced as much nonstop opposition as the Trump administration has from every single other power center in American life other than the White House itself. And that includes power centers within the federal government that supposedly, on paper, report to the president, but either don't obey his orders or slow roll him or ignore him or uh, undermine him. And including uh, power centers within his own party. Uh, We saw an expression of this yesterday with the release of the Senate Intelligence Intelligence Committee's report on Russiagate three years in the making. Um, and these questions uh, about um, the Obama administration officials uh, and, and their relationship with some of the principals that were or some of the operatives, not principals, but some of the operatives that were named that Paul Manafort interacted with. They interacted with the uh, Obama State Department and State Department officials, too. And no Republican mention of that. So, so you know, Republican institutional Republicans in Congress, uh, Paul Ryan, in the first two years of the administration, didn't want to do something uh, big on immigration like build the wall. I mean, th- those have been struck. No, no, no. Well, well look, let's be let's be clear about what Paul Ryan is. I mean, Paul Ryan is an is an open borders, frankly, shill for the Chamber of Commerce Republicans. Republican types, and he comes at it from two angles. One is this kind of ideological commitment that he gives, gets from his former mentor, Jack Kemp, that there's a civil right for all foreigners throughout the world to emigrate to the United States and become an American, and you couldn't talk Paul Ryan out of it to save your life. But the other is, but he knows where the donor base is. Yeah. He's a kind of Chamber of Commerce slash AEI Republican conservative who thinks that um, you know, the cheaper labor means higher, uh, higher market prices for stocks and equities and, other, and asset prices and lower consumer prices. Paul Ryan was never, ever, ever going to be a reliable ally for Trump on immigration. No. He was always going to try to undercut the president. I suppose if I, I know, I don't, I don't like to criticize the president. I don't want to criticize the president, but I think he would have been better served had he gone in there with a clearer appreciation for who Paul Ryan is and what Paul Ryan stands for and, and been prepared to fight him. I mean, Trump coming into office in 2017 had done the unthinkable. He beat the entire Republican establishment on his own. He was in a position of great strength. I think he could have carried that fight further into his administration. And, you know, what well, happened is they, they came to him with uh, the, the Senate leadership and, and, and the congressional leadership came to him with protestations of loyalty and cooperation, and the president trusted them, which, you know, I suppose it's tempting once you win a victory to want to believe when your, your erstwhile enemies and now friends come to you with their handout and say, let's work together. You want to believe that they're serious about it. So I don't, I don't, I don't blame him for that. But in hindsight, I think uh, it would have been better to just uh, kept the fight going. Well, right. No, I mean, that, well, that's why I'm talking about the structural impediments. And then you get to this, you know, he thought sort of his, uh, you know, again, personality diplomacy, uh, Paul Ryan being the speaker, it's easier road to work with him and try to be constructive than it is to be a, an open uh, war on multiple fronts. And so you can understand the position. But but that, those were the structural impediments, no question, within the party. Um, 
It's also exhausting to be in open war all the time. I mean, yeah, it, it, right. it does feel like you, you know, it's hard. The, the great legislative accomplishments, whether they did good or bad things for our country, but the, the momentous ones, the, the long-term and far-reaching ones, are ultimately the result of compromise, patient working together and things like that. And I think Trump tried to do that. And, you know, his, his, again, his, his enemies learned something from the primary, which is go underground, dissemble a bit more, uh, uh, you know, don't tell the truth exactly about what you're doing or what you stand for and, you know, work to manipulate. And they did that fairly successfully. Uh, this uh, week, we've heard a lot from Democrat socialists about unity, uh, sort of in the, uh, the I don't know, sort of the 60s commune sense of the uh, the, the imagery, at least that the, the way they're talking about it. Uh, and and you uh, tackle this a bit in your piece, the case for Trump as well. You know what unity exa- exactly means when we talk about unity. Well, I mean, when I hear a Democrat or a liberal talk about unity or a leftist talk about unity now, I, I, I want to laugh, but unfortunately my soul is constructed in such a way that instead I just get angry. I don't like being lectured about unity by people who've spent the last at least 50 years destroying deliberately and attacking every vestige of the American unity that we, our country once was able to take for granted and then complain when the people like me and others like me who love the country, who love its symbols, who love its history, who are proud of its accomplishments, who are willing to acknowledge the just claims of the other side, willing to acknowledge when we lose an election, willing to say that, you know, yes, even though I don't agree with this or that program, I don't agree with this or that style of, uh, of governance or whatever, when you win an election and you get to implement that, it's fair, and then we get our turn. When I, and then blame us for uh, undermining American unity f- uh, by voting for Trump and say that Trump is the divisive one. All unity means to them is submit. We decide what is right and what is real. You bend the knee, bow down, and then we're unified because we get everything we want and you no longer have any say. That's all that they mean. And so it's risable, arrogant, and offensive when, to hear these people talk like that, so that's, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, it's the one I share, and that's uh, the diagnosis of what they're doing. You also often... I mean, just, I just I want to say one point. It was just, I, okay. Tucker Carlson says often, I mean, I cannot repeat this enough. He uses the following phrase. Everything they accuse you of doing, they're doing, right? Anytime a leftist says, the right is X, the right is Y, you've done this terrible thing, you've done this bad thing, and you look around and you wonder, what are they talking about? I don't think like that. I don't feel like that. I don't act like that. I never have. The answer is very simple. It's exactly what they're doing to you, and it is a propaganda and a coping strat- psychological coping strategy for them to accuse you of doing all of the horrible and mendacious things that they're doing. And the accusation that Trump and Trump supporters are disunifying a con- the country is exactly that. It is what they're doing, and so they accuse us of doing it. Yes, they are masters of projection. When we come back with Michael Anton from the Claremont Institute, I want to talk about what a second Trump term could mean and what the next iteration of the Republican Party, with Trump or without him, should look like. More with Michael Anton coming back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Michael Anton, Hillsdale College lecturer and Claremont Institute uh, uh, essayist. He's got a new book out called The Stakes. 
And in that essay, excerpted in Claremont Review of Books, Michael, you talk about what the future of the Republican Party needs to be in terms of the positions it needs to take if it's going to have a future in America. So let's talk about that. Part of my thesis is that the shattered unity, which the left has spent 50 years shattering. So cultural unit, what I say in the essay is that right now, cultural unity sadly seems to be gone. I hope it isn't gone forever, but it seems to be out of reach right now. The cultural divide between blue and red is too great. What I saw as the promise of Trumpism in 2015, 2016, was for the first time in a long time, an explicit appeal to those left behind in the tech finance coastal blue winner-take-all economy, right? Those left behind include people in manufacturing, the, the lower middle class, the working class, people in ordinary services, anybody whose business or company is at risk of being outsourced, whose job is at risk of being outsourced or automated or, 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 and so on. And that this co- that a possibility of, of building a coalition of those kinds of people who have been left behind, the majority of whom are in red states, interior states, and the majority of them are white. But all, not all of them are white. There are a lot of blue-collar, working-class, black and Hispanic people in the private sector whose wages have been hurt, whose incomes have been hurt by ec- the economic policies that I broadly call in, in the book, which the, of which the essay is excerpted. The book's called The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. I broadly call neoliberalism. All the people hurt by neoliberalism, if Trump can build a coalition amongst those people, then I think there's a possibility for uh, uh, a national coalition that can win elections, that can win national elections, and, and maybe lead to a real realignment. So that the first step to rebuilding cultural unity or kind of patriotic citizen unity is to rebuild economic unity. And that's where I saw the promise of Trumpism. Now, four years later, it's unfulfilled. That doesn't mean it can never be fulfilled. It means that the, it's been a really hard four-year fight, and it means that for sure four years is not enough. I don't even think eight years is going to be enough. And so what I think has to happen is first, for this strategy to work, Trump's got to win a second term. His second term has to be successful. And then the Republican Party has to become much more of a Trumpist party, much less of the party of banks and capital and corporations that it has been for a while on the Chamber of Commerce and all of that, and much more the party of the middle class, blue collar, um, yes, of course, the flyover states, the interior states, but also those people with the same basic economic cultural interests, economic and cultural interests, who live in the blue states. And if the Republican Party can become that party, which... Uh, it is trending toward, but then the people who run the Republican Party and who give a lot of the money are trying to prevent that from happening. If that can happen, then I think you know, there's possibly a bright future ahead. But it's going to require you know, defeating not just the left in the 2020 election, but it's going to require defeating the traditional Republican donor class and also the traditional conservative intellectual class in the year in, right now and in the years after 2020. Yeah, I mean, you, you admit uh... – in, 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 for the purposes of, of candor, that uh, this will require the Republican Party to move leftward in the sense of away from, uh, uh, you know, the pure free market arguments that are made, even though there's never been right. such a thing as a pure free market and there's not going to be uh, likely. But but so so are you embracing like what a Marco Rubio calls common good capitalism? Is that where the party needs to be? I don't know exactly what Senator Rubio means by common good capitalism, but I'll, I will present my own example, which is to say, if state power is used to say, no, you're not going to be allowed to move this factory to another country, you're going to have to make this 
product or piece of the supply chain here, even if it costs you five cents more per unit and your profit margin declines by 3%, the free market ideologue would say, um, A, that's inefficient, right? Capitalism is all about efficiency and the best thing for the best price wherever it is. And the property rights, uh, uh, I'm a supporter of property rights, but the supporter of property rights would say, well, the owners of these things have the absolute right to do whatever they want with them. Both of those arguments uh, essentially completely disconnect the economy from the country and from the people. They make it uh, a thing that ha uh, has no direct relevance to people's lives. The American founders didn't feel this way. So, for instance, Alexander Hamilton, the first secretary of state, was very blunt um, uh, in the founding era saying, we need tariffs. Why do we need tariffs? Because if we don't have tariffs, these more mature European economies, especially the British industrial economy, or you know, emerging industrial economy, they're, they're already building stuff at, at, a, at, a, at a faster rate. They already have efficiencies of scale that we don't have. And if we simply compete on price, we're going to lose. We will never develop these industries. And the founders believed fully in property rights in this, uh, uh, and, and in the protection of property. And they saw no contradiction between saying that there were going to be limits. We were going to distort the market deliberately with policies specifically to help our country and our citizens. Another thing you'll hear the conservative economic ideologues say is they complain about, well, government shouldn't be picking winners. And I've always found that argument to be facile. Superficially, it sounds great. Yes, you want the market to decide. But really, you, do you want the market to decide when the market has com been completely globalized? Because I'd like the government to thumb the scale if by picking winners, it's picking America as the winner, and it's picking American workers as the winner, and it's picking American industry as the winner. The logical argument of the economic extremists is that it wouldn't matter if not a single factory were left operating anywhere in the United States. Um, and you know, we saw one clear example of how that can be a problem at the beginning of the uh, coronavirus outbreak when it turned out we didn't know how to make surgical masks anymore. We had outsourced all of that. We couldn't make ingredients for key medications. We had outsourced all of that. And moreover, we had outsourced all of it to a hostile power that was either clamping down on our ability to get these things that we needed or threatening to clamp down in a way that might have really harmed the physical health of the American people. I think m most Americans woke up. I mean, many have been warning about it for a long time. But that was a real example of Americans waking up to the threat that, you know, this kind of crazy free market extremist ideology where you don't even want to make vital medicine on your own soil if, as long as you can get it for one cent cheaper from a hostile foreign power. I think most Americans woke up to that and said, all right, this is, this is really stupid and we've been doing it for too long and it's time to reverse course. But, I mean, don't you have concerns as you open the door to this and, and embrace it uh, to borrow from – you know, our, our nation's founder, George Washington, that government is like fire, a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Don't you worry that, you know, if once you establish that uh, this is the baseline, use government as a force for good, then government just grows and becomes used for uh, as a force for somebody's self-interest or another person's self-interest, sort of like what we have now. And we're one hundred twenty trillion dollars in debt with all sorts of expansive and intrusive government as a result. Sure. We should always worry about that. But government has already grown well beyond the scope of what any of the founders or Lincoln's generation or the post-Civil War Republicans or Coolidge's generation, I mean, you name it. You can yeah, go back right. almost any Republican, right. any Republican conservative or many Democratic statesmen of the past hundred years. Government's already triple the size of that or whatever. I mean, massively bigger than that. So all I know is that conservative, small government, limited government rhetoric has gotten the party exactly nowhere. 
I'd like to see, as the founders thought was appropriate, the exercise of state power in ways that benefit the American workers and the American economy. He is Michael Anton, lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, former national security official in the Trump administration, and the author of the new book, forthcoming, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. In the uh, previous hour, we spoke with U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams about a number of topics, including uh, the preparedness for the pandemic on the vaccine front, and this from a piece by Dr. Joel Zinberg, who is a fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute also a clinical uh, associate clinical professor of surgery at Mount Sinai Icon uh, School of Medicine in New York, uh, who uh, wrote it with uh, Tomas Philipson, who's a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Uh, they wrote about uh, this report that was produced by the Council of Economic Advisors last fall um, at the behest of the National Security Council's biodefense team and how they shifted in the report the recommendations for how to approach innovation for the purposes of developing a vaccine to a pandemic. The White House report managing the impact of pandemic influenza through vaccine innovation. This is the September 19 report. Uh, And um, uh, that it included some of the elements that are in Operation Warp Speed, the uh, effort by the federal government to drive a vaccine for COVID-19. Thinking about uh, push incentives versus pull incentives, having the federal government get in on the front side, the committee, the uh, commission of the dollars necessary to accelerate and mass produce vaccines that do make it through all of the required and appropriate clinical trials. And so so this was something that was in process. What perhaps they didn't prepare for was the politicization of all things surrounding the virus, because much like the response is unprecedented, it's hard to argue that the politicization of the response is also unprecedented. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Jonathan Ellen, Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. John, good to have you back. Appreciate yes, it. Sir. Good to be back. Yeah, you. so you have uh, written recently in City Journal about uh, the uh, dangers of herd skepticism in this area of vaccines. And so for all of the talk of we can't do this until there's a vaccine. We're hopeful that by this time of uh, this year, early next year, we'll have a vaccine. All this optimism, all these triggers that are predicated on a vaccine. And there's one thing that everybody's forgotten is that this whole matter has been so politicized that you have great skepticism of a vaccine, no matter from where it comes or who's arguing on its behalf. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that one of there's there's two sort of things that are going on here. One of them is that. Um, the health communication, as you said, because it's been politicized by everybody, has made it so that no one really trusts what they're hearing. Right. And so since they don't trust what they're hearing, and you're coming out with a vaccine that will only have been tested for six months in all the trials, 
you're going to have people with a lot of skepticism about being guinea pigs. And then you're also going to have the problem that people are going to be, you know, the rollout's going to be slow and hesitant. And I guess my take home, and I think it's what you were leading up to, is that even under the best circumstances, we will not have sufficient numbers of people vaccinated or immunized, even if we have an effective vaccine, probably by next fall. So if you, you know, the concept that we'll be able to control the spread of the of the cases and prevent deaths, you know, somehow magically right after the vaccine is developed, say if it is magically developed in the first quarter of 21, we're going to be living like this next summer. And once people start to realize we're going to be living like this next summer, as you were setting up, we would think, think about how we're going to live our lives between now and maybe it's even a Christmas and a half from now differently than we would if we think come January 1 when the vaccine's ready, we're all going to be fine and we can go back to our lives. Yeah, I look, I, I mean, you, you can play this out, right? I mean, just to make it concrete, uh, there's a vaccine developed by, you know, pick one of the companies, uh, AstraZeneca or Moderna, pick, right. pick one of them, doesn't doesn't yeah. matter. And yeah, President Trump comes out and says, look, here's all, here's the report, here's the pharma companies and the researchers responsible, here's all the results of the clinical trials, and, and it's published in The Lancet, and it's published in JAMA, and everybody says, yeah, this uh, certainly passes muster. But President Trump is promoting it, and you're going to have people say, that's the same guy who said we should drink bleach. Don't trust him. And that's, and, and, and that's going to appeal to a third of the population. Exactly. Right? I mean, that's, that's yeah, either way. And if, on the other hand, you know, there's just there's no way for this to win, you know, and that's the problem. And I think you're 100 percent right, which is it doesn't matter who says what at this point. There's always going to be some third of the country that's going to say that that person's motivated not by truth, but by some other motivation. And then they're going to discount it. And at the end of the day, then we're not going to have people lining up to get the vaccine. The only good news about a vaccine is it could get to frontline workers, essential workers. And even if it's only 50 percent protective at least that group who doesn't have a choice about exposure can get some benefit. But at a mass level, we're still going to have restaurant problems and bar problems and all these things. Well, and, and we're going to have to come to terms with. Yeah, and, and no, and, that, and that's what I want to pick up when we come back, too, because then that also demands some standard setting that hasn't been done, uh, not just the whims of those in charge. That's not a standard. And I want to talk to you about that more with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Jonathan Allen. He's a pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. We were talking about vaccines and what people can trust. And, um, you know, I went over this with uh, Surgeon General uh, uh, Dr. Adams as well, but I, I want to get your reaction to this survey because this is a bit depressing too, uh, Dr. Ellen. Franklin Templeton Gallup survey. On average, Americans believe that people aged 55 and older account for just over half the total COVID-19 deaths. The actual figure is 92%. Americans believe that age, people aged 45 and younger account for about a third of total deaths. The actual figure is 3%, off by a factor of 10. Americans overestimate the risk of death from COVID-19 for people aged 24 and younger by a factor of 50. 
and they think the risk for people age 65 and older is half of what it actually is, 40 percent versus 80 percent. So we've got the public believing exactly the opposite of what they need to understand about the virus. That 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 turns out it would seem to be a huge problem. And and so when you're uh, driving people to positions that are uh, just, you know, patently incorrect and then they're clinging to those positions from uh, for political purposes or for political disposition, that, that then you really have a problem doing almost anything, including uh, having this rational discussion we have to have, as you were sort of intimating before the break, about what life is going to be like if we're going to be uh, dealing with COVID infections for the foreseeable near term, at least in near term talking years. You and I have been having this dialogue now. It's probably going on about four months where we. I know it's not getting better. I know it's how you make it better. (laughs) I mean, we have this, we've been having this conversation that says we can't seem to have a rational dialogue that weighs the pluses and the minuses of what is the risk of COVID infection, what's the risk of death, what's the risk of the mitigation strategies. You and I had a long discussion about the impact on the economy and the impact on on how social isolation could have an impact on the the well-being of many others. So when we shut down the economy, there was a consequence that that we that people did not want to talk about. And and just and uh, so, so, sorry yeah, to interrupt, yeah. sorry <laughs> to interrupt, but just, just on that <laughs> score, just on that score, now we have we're starting to get data, right? Uh, the UK published data yeah. that uh, two uh, lockdown deaths for every three COVID deaths. So we're now we're actually and still nobody wants to talk about that. Right. And so what we get to is we get to this place where and this is why I think what I was trying to get to with the vaccine. If I told you that and people could actually feel realize that what you're experiencing now, you're going to experience for the next 18 months. It's not going to be another six months. It's going to be another 18 months. Can we really have a real dialogue that says, does that mean every time there's an outbreak of cases and no one's dying? Let's just put it that way. And then we talk about how we protect those who are vulnerable but no one's dying. Can we stop reacting like the world just caved in? Yeah. And, and that's the, and so I think there's a legitimate point that says if the community burden goes up because the schools are open and that, uh, and that rise in the burden, un- vulnerable populations are getting infected and dying. I haven't seen, you know, that, that chain of, of transmission is what we need to know more about. That's the next piece of data. But if that's not how it's happening, then we got to be a little more, you know, we got to have, and you're going to keep people out of school for two more years. I mean, this is where, um, you know, people would make a different decision if they realized this, the new normal could be going on for two years versus. uh, Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think that's, I think that's right. And so the question is, how do we get to a sort of the threshold setting? Because the threshold setting by politicians seems to be mainly whimsical and definitely inconsistent versus the threshold setting just uh, a month or two ago when they were starting to reopen. And so so how do we get to sensible threshold setting so that, you know, as you say, four kids get covid and Chapel Hill in North Carolina closes the school because um, that will be going on for years. And, and how do people live in that unstable whack-a-mole type of environment? But that, that the standard setting seems to be where we're having a difficulty, having difficulty even driving to get to something that you can build consensus around. Right. I mean, we were talking at a WHO level that a positivity rate, five, six, seven percent 
is a threshold that it's not only if it's that we can do more things, but that also means that there's going to be cases. So when people say there's a five or six, seven percent positivity rate on tests, that starts to define a threshold for the community, but the threshold is not zero. I mean, that's kind of what we're both saying. The threshold is not zero. The threshold is going to be some number of per test that are positive or people, percent of people are positive. And if our best measure of that is positivity, the number of tests that are positive, then that will be what it is. And five to 7% is going to mean that if you have a hundred people, you're going to have five cases, you know, we get, you know, so it's not zero. Right. And that's the hard part. Everyone yeah. wants it to be zero. <laughs> well, uh, well, I, I, but, but I mean, but for for people who yeah. want it to be zero, I, I, I don't know what you be. They, I, I don't know if there's some sort of public uh, institutionalization uh, procedure or something. I mean, it's just like it's called a trip to Tahiti. Yeah, I don't know. What to say. But 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 you had this at the DNC, too. And not to make this partisan, but I would say the same thing yeah. if if uh, a Republican politician I mean, Andrew Cuomo using this tortured political metaphor, you know, uh, our politics is uh, the virus is a metaphor for our politics uh, because uh, we have this uh, this uh, uh, disease that is running through our body politic and government is the immune system. I mean, when you have politicians saying that, it's just like, okay, so so this whole thing, your posturing on the topic is just straight political. And so I should just discount everything you say. Exactly. I mean, I think that's where the whole thing gets messed up. I mean, I do think that it's been politicized. I think there's been a lot of bad decisions made along the way. But I definitely think that we cannot have a reasonable debate because every time it's brought up in the context of, you know, what's working, what's not, rather than being this is how science works, this is how data rolls in, this is how you learn what's going on, it's always, as soon as a politician starts talking about it, they're using it as a weapon. And they're weaponizing, you know, what we're trying to do to fight it uh, and, and discuss, actually, how to how to live under this kind of condition. And it's what you said. It doesn't really matter right or left. It just doesn't matter. They're all doing it. He is Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to close out the show and uh, consistent with our conversations and from different angles with both Michael Anton and uh, Dr. Jonathan Ellen this hour, talking about uh, schools opening and college education, the intersection between the two, as uh, I mentioned sort of in passing earlier in the program about University of North Carolina, you get an outbreak, you shut the school down, no standards, uh, the conversation we're having with Dr. Ellen. Well, by contrast, the president of Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, of all places, posted this, the virus isn't going away, that's why campuses need to reopen. Huh? Yeah. At Northeastern University, we announced in May our intention to reopen after consulting with epidemiologists, biologists, and network scientists on our faculty. Their work convinced us that bringing students back to the university would be crucial, 
not because the COVID-19 virus isn't a serious, highly transmissible threat, but because it is. The pandemic, we realize, is going to be endemic, an ongoing threat to manage, not a brief blip in history, cleanly wiped out by a miracle vaccine. The science will take time, but the world cannot. And as we were discussing with Dr. Ellen, the science will take time. Acceptance of the science may take even more time, and the world cannot. Manufacturing enough doses to vaccinate the entire country, let alone the world, will take many months. A recent national survey shows just 62% of Americans would accept a vaccine. Below the 70%, most experts say, is the minimum needed to achieve herd immunity. Maybe, maybe not. We've had that discussion over the last couple of days, too, including earlier in the program today with uh, Surgeon General uh, Dr. Adams. But, uh, you know, again, plotting out a realistic scenario for consideration of how you want to live. Northeastern University president uh, says, look, uh, this makes COVID-19, if it plays out how some of the experts are suggesting, a four to five year problem, maybe minimum. This, according to some epidemiologists he's consulted with. So pausing in-person education that long? Are you ready to make it four or five years? K through 12 education? Your business operation, particularly if you're in the private sector, uh, excuse me, the service sector in the private sector. <laughs> you know, pause, put your life on hold for four or five years based on the threat assessments as we understand them today. Does that make sense? So rather than uh, the decision whether or not uh, the Northeastern University president said the question for us was how to do so safeguarding the health and safety of the campus community, nearby neighborhoods, you know, all the planning that went into it. The decision to reopen is high stakes, he concludes, and hardly simple. Every university has different circumstances to contend with. Other nations in Europe, Asia, and Asia have given us a blueprint to manage COVID-19 effectively and not just muddle through, waiting for a vaccine to come to the rescue. Well, um, yeah, the veiled shot, of course. Other nations uh, operate differently, different culturally, than the United States. And there's a lot of other nations in Europe and Asia that are um, rolling catastrophes. Uh, let's not uh, uh, genuflect before authoritarianism in uh, other parts of the world, oh, by the way. But uh, his uh, concluding sentence is the operative one. Universities need to take control of the virus and show our communities how to do the same. Well, I'll take it. I'll end the show on that optimistic note from Northeastern University of all places. Thanks for joining us on this installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.